Amen. Please be seated. While you're doing that, can you show your appreciation to our worship team this morning? So grateful for them. Thankful. I always want to highlight this. The worship team leads us, but thankful to sing that song together as a church, um, the way they did it there as we sang. What a powerful but simple song to rejoice in on this Palm Sunday. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, continuing our series. We're going to read verse 18 through 29 in a moment, and we are in a series, Jesus is Better, and today we're talking about Jesus in a better kingdom. Jesus in a better kingdom. You think about Palm Sunday as Jesus comes into Jerusalem as its rightful king, and uh, celebrating the kingdom that he's come to establish that's unshakable. We're going to read about that, Hebrews 12 here, beginning in verse 18 says this, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would open our eyes and hearts this morning. Lord, I believe you want us to see the glorious goodness of the gospel in comparison to all of our religious efforts today. But Lord, for that to be meaningful to us from the heart, Lord, we need your spirit to give us sight. And so today, God, we ask that not only would we hear your word as it's been read, understand it as we consider these things, but that your spirit might use it to give life to us and sight to our eyes. God, we open our hearts to you and trust you to speak through this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, we were in Iceland, and we were uh, doing an ESL camp there with a number of other members. This was four or five years ago, and the, the Longs were there with us, Tim and Amanda Long. They've been showing up in a lot of sermon illustrations lately. And uh, we decided we wanted to, at the end of the SL camp, make a trip down the south shore of Iceland, one of the most beautiful places that I've ever been. We intended it to be a day trip, and it turned into an overnight, because I wanted to go further on beyond where we had previously been to this place that was like five and a half hours away, called the Glacier Lagoon. 
It's everything you might imagine it to be, or so I thought. And so we began to uh, continue in that direction. We found a place to stay overnight, sort of randomly, and it was a bit of an adventure. And we woke up and we drove the next day for hours on end, feeling like we were in one of those video games where the screen just keeps repeating. And we had small children, you know, uh, it was several years ago, our children were younger and none of our vehicles had movie screens. Now you understand the implications of that if you have children and you have traveled. And somewhere along the way, as we're driving hours along the south coast of Iceland, I started to think, I sure hope this is worth it. You know, you get an idea of what you're going to go and see, and you think it might be worth it. And as we continued on, I sort of was starting to question whether we were on a fool's errand. And then we came around the corner, and we crossed this bridge, and my youngest daughter looked out to the left and saw the glacier lagoon with all these pieces of ice bobbing in it and the glorious background of the mountains behind it. And she said, wow. Thank you, Dad. And I knew it was worth it. Honestly, there were people there, and it was like a joyful environment, and it was one of the most spectacular places that I've ever seen, probably top three all time in my life. And, and it was just one of those moments, and you get out of the car, and not only are you excited, but this whole long pilgrimage, you realize there are other people that knew it was worth it, and, and you're just a part of a crowd of people that's like teeming with life and excitement and joy, and the journey, the journey was worth it. Well, as the writer wraps up this section on faith, he's been pointing us to this city all along. He's saying, we're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. And he's been pointing us to this glorious hope, and, 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 he's, and he's been saying, to, telling us to have faith and endure what yet remains unseen about the promises of God's word. And he puts the whole idea of our spiritual life inside the image of a pilgrimage. The image of a pilgrimage is what's on display here at the end of chapter 12. The Christian life really lived out is a journey with a unique destination that now, he says, has been made all the more clear by what Jesus has revealed to us about God. You see, the writer of Hebrews has been trying to change what we think about God. Entirely. The image that we carry and have. And he's been saying that in Christ we have received a better kingdom that we are journeying to. And this passage summarizes the transition that we will experience on this journey of spiritual life from one place to another. And what he wants us to do is take a look at our spiritual life and prepare for the pilgrimage that lies ahead, one that will require faith and endurance, and understand the sort of pilgrimage it is. If we're thinking about the spiritual life, the faithful Christian life as a pilgrimage, he's got two particular things he wants us to see here in this passage, and I want to point them out to you. The first one is this, that the Christian life is a pilgrimage from religious fear to gospel freedom. The Christian life, genuine spirituality, spirituality that brings us into relationship with the true God that has created us, is a journey, a pilgrimage from religious fear to gospel freedom. Let me show you what I mean. I think it's going to be obvious in this passage when we get done. If we're going to live our lives faithfully before God, or live authentic spiritual lives at all, we are going to have to go on a journey about what it means to come to God. We are going to have to understand what that means, and most of us have a lot of bad ideas, religiously and spiritually speaking, that need deep transformation if we're going to see God clearly and understand what we're journeying to. Here's what I would like us to understand. The, the images that we have of God, the, the picture, when, when, I, when we talk about God, what you form in your mind and what you think about is so contrary to what 
God is revealing to us in His Son that, that even for those of us who have been walking with Christ for a long time, as we continue on the pilgrimage, it requires deep transformation for us to believe the truth of the gospel in all of its beauty. Real spiritual life is about going from blindness to sight. And Jesus opens our eyes, but then he spends the rest of our life helping us understand what we are seeing. There's this amazing healing miracle in the, in the New Testament where a man comes to Jesus and he can't see. And, and the disciples have been struggling because they've begun to understand what Jesus is calling them to. And Jesus performs this miracle on the man and gives him sight but when the man's eyes are opened, he looks around and it, he's, it's like he doesn't know what he's seeing. He can't even make sense of it. And so he, so he needs a second miracle for Jesus to help him. That Those aren't men like trees walking, where he gives him an understanding of what his mind is supposed to match up with what he's seeing. And this is the picture of the spiritual life, that Jesus in salvation opens our eyes, but then spends the rest of our life helping us really believe the gospel. <laughs> Like it's that good? The picture and image of God that we see revealed by Christ is far better than the religion and the personal imaginations that you still hold on to. God has a better picture to show you today. He does so right here in this passage. The Christian life is a pilgrimage of seeing God through a picture of religious fear to coming to understand real gospel freedom. Let me show you what that means. In the text, we see that the writer wants us to understand the primary change that we need through a contrast of two gatherings. Maybe you noticed this. So it starts in verse 18. I want, I, want, I want to help you see this contrast. Notice the language that sets up a comparison in verse 18. For you have not come. If you're the type that underlines in your Bible, just write, you have not come. And then verse 22, he says, but you have come. He's, he's comparing what the Old Testament people of Israel understood at the Mount Sinai deliverance of the law about God to what now we see clearly through Jesus Christ about who God is, what his purpose is for us, what it means to have a real relationship. And, he's, and so he uses a comparison of what it was like for them to receive this revelation about God's holiness and yet not know how he would save them from their unholiness. And so he gives a comparison. You see it there in verse 18. You have not come as Christians to this mountain. <laughs> You've come to a different one. <laughs> and it's way better. And so he's going to show us a little bit about what that looks like. He is saying what we now have in regards to a relationship with God through Jesus is not like the type of relationship that the people experienced and understood at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20. And he begins to show us a fearful picture. What he says, verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Notice how he says may be touched here. He's, he's using this thing that he's been talking about in Hebrews all along, where they're stuck on what they can see and draw near to and touch. While God's promises yet remain, they're going to have to trust what they can't yet see about what God's going to complete for their salvation. And so he says, he says, you've not come to what can be touched, but then he describes life under the law. He describes life under man-made religion all at the same time, to be honest, because it all looks like law in the end. Look at the way that it stands out. He says, you've not come to what may be touched. He describes a blazing fire and darkness and gloom in a tempest. All he's doing is summarizing the imagery of Exodus 19 and 20 when the law was given. So you could go back and read this and, and it would feel exactly like what he's describing. Does that make sense? God was revealing a picture of his holiness. And, and how did these people respond? He said, it says in verse 19, you haven't come to a mountain where there's the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. What was it like for the people to see God under the law? 
It was like saying, please stop. We'll stay away. And in fact, God's holiness made it so clear that if he were to draw near to them and they to him, that their sin would require such judgment that a circle was made around the mountain of which he even said, don't allow the animals to come into. How welcome under the law, (laughs) under our own effort, under our own works, are we to draw near to God? Pictured here, it's a fearful idea such that that they, they couldn't even endure the order that was given. It was too much to ask for, he says in verse 20. And it was so terrifying was the sight that Moses, their leader, said, I tremble with fear. So this is the image. The revelation of God's holiness in the giving of the law is necessary for us to understand who God is and who we are, but it's incomplete. Or unfinished until Jesus makes abundantly more clear God's saving mercy. But this picture in verse 18 through 21 is the way we feel if we are trying to piece together a spirituality apart from Jesus. The commands are too much. We we tremble at what God must think of us, and we would never really think of drawing near and being accepted by God. We can't even imagine a leader that could overcome it and bring us to God, because deep down all of our spiritual leaders fall short and seem to share our same fears. This is the picture, a fearful picture. What is it like to be near God? This was the image that was incomplete for them it wasn't the full picture of what God was preparing to do but but just a glimpse of God's presence in their life and the people began to say you know what Moses why don't you go ahead and talk to God for us we want to stay distant and so much that passes for modern spirituality and so much that passes for religion apart from God is about drawing near enough to maybe get some of the benefits, but fearfully keeping our distance because we know we're unworthy. Listen, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but apart from Jesus, I get the sense that as soon as my image of safeness with God meets the reality of God's presence, I would be struck just like every person in the Old Testament was when God drew near. Have you ever noticed that under the law, when God draws near, nobody rejoices? They tremble. They say, like Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, I'm a man of unclean lips. They tremble. They say, don't let me see the fullness of it. I can't bear it. You see, we play around with God. We've got ideas in our head about how safe God is that are not the real picture of the glorious God of creation who in a moment can decide to end or sustain our lives who we make no demands upon. Any sense that you can make demands upon the God who created the universe is just foolishness, isn't it? Here's the amazing thing. The front end of this comparison shows us what it would be like if we only understood what God had revealed through the law and were left to earn our way to God ourselves. But then the comparison that he says is, but we aren't here to gather around that mountain. We've got a new mountain around which God gathers us that tells a whole different story about the heart of God for sinners to welcome them into a relationship with him. And he begins to unfold that by comparison in verse 22. In verse 22 he says, but you, you haven't come to that mountain. Now Jesus, the better word has revealed something more clear about God's heart for people who are lost and unworthy and his desire to draw us near to him. He says in verse 22, very clearly, he says, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. We're supposed to see that in comparison to Mount Sinai. Fearful Mount Sinai. No, we've come 
to the place of festivals. <laughs> so in the Old Testament, it's interesting if we think about what's happening here. He's saying Jesus is different. And you need to understand this today. The coming of Jesus was a clear word from God that speaks past our religious ideas to what is really true with the God who created you. What did Jesus come to bring us to? Well, it's pictured here. Jesus is bringing us into the experience of Jerusalem in its most festive state. Now, Zion was the mountain on which Jerusalem was built. When Jerusalem was established for the people of Israel, it became the place of God's promise and blessing. It was the place of David's kingship where God said, I will build you a house and establish a kingdom that will have no end. It's also the place where the promises of the Jewish holiday festivals all pointed forward to God's salvation on their behalf apart from their inability to keep the law. And so each year they would pilgrimage to Jerusalem. The people from all over Israel and eventually all over Asia Minor would gather into Israel and they would go up and they would be singing. And, and here, the triumphal entry is best understood. What we read about at the beginning of Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem as the rightful kingdom while one of these festivals, the Feast of the Passover, is going on. And what was the Feast of the Passover? It was a historic reminder that the God who brought them out of Egypt by grace would also bring them into the fullness of his salvation by grace and he would cover their sin with the blood of the Lamb and they would be free. And so they would walk up and march up to Zion singing songs saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one, looking forward to Jesus coming, who comes in the name of the Lord, the King, who can set us free from the tyranny of our sin and deliver into our lives the promises of his kingdom. And so he, he describes this pilgrim festival and here's what it was meant to be. The picture of Jerusalem at holiday season was a prophetic picture of the future Jerusalem, our eternal city, the city of God that awaits those who have trusted in Jesus. It's a picture of the joy of our salvation, the feast of the gospel delivered to us. And look what he begins to show us. The details create an image of belonging. He describes us. He's, what he's saying is, if you've come to Jesus, that's the but you have come to. If you come to Jesus by faith, this is what you've come to. Something entirely different than that other mountain. Look at the quality of it. You come, he shows an image of belonging. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. This is a gathering of the children of God. He says those who have come to faith in Christ, as they gather, they're gathering into a family celebration. What does that mean? He doesn't just say it's a family celebration. He says it's the festival, it's the celebration of the firstborn. Now, if you've had children, you know what it's like to welcome the first child into the family. Recently, the Crafts welcomed their first grandchild. And there was lots of rejoicing to welcome the firstborn grandchild. But here, what he's saying is the picture of the gospel is in a city where we've come in and we're all the firstborn of God. And we are gathered and we belong. We're rejoiced over by our Heavenly Father. We are welcome into the house. He's celebrating that we have been born into this kingdom and we are welcome at the celebration around his table. That's what we've come to. A different mountain, city, celebration. This is a different gathering altogether. The freedom of their safety and justice as the God of all creation is the judge. Which sounds fearful, but you know, it's worse to be judged by the world. The worst thing that we can do is to actually believe the judgments of people around us rather than the judgments of God, to concern us with what ourselves with what people say rather than what God says about us, and to realize that there are people who have the power to make things happen in this world, committing great injustice. We, we can entrust ourselves to the God of the universe who will ultimately sort things out. It's a city of justice, of safety from tyranny. That's what he's showing. 
What else is there? It's, it's, he shows that it's a city of forgiveness and purity. As we're described as we've come to the spirit of the righteous made perfect. He's not just talking about a disembodied state. What he's saying is the, the spiritual life and energy of that place as we gather around in this gathering as the assembly of the firstborn. It's a group of people who have been cleansed and forgiven. They're no longer afraid of the judgment that will come against their sins. They're, they're the spirits of the righteous made perfect. That God has the power to finish what he's started and make us a people who gather around, not in our impurity and our inability, but God has made us righteous and whole. And because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, we're declared righteous by his blood. He keeps pressing in with that he says he's showing that as we work our way to the center of this gathering we find not simply a prophet or sage but we find the mediator of the new covenant jesus christ the very son of god now what's happening we've got a new relationship the old covenant the old relationship under the law was one of fearful judgment and he says at the center here we've got a new mediator it's jesus christ not one who just points us to what it might be like to know god if we could get there but one who has given himself so that we could know God and discover that God's joy is being delivered for, to us for free. The mediator of a new covenant. And there at the center of it, that mediator of the new covenant, in the middle of this gathering, he is speaking a word. <laughs> He's actually saying something to all of us who are gathered around there, and he continues to say it from now until eternity. He is speaking a word over us about the accomplishment of his blood to atone for our souls. And he gives us this final contrast so we don't miss it between the word that his blood speaks over our life from the center of this joyful place and the word of the blood of Abel. Now, if you don't know much about the Old Testament, you could miss this contrast. But at the center of this is this idea that in Genesis chapter 4, the blood of Abel, after he is slain by his brother Cain, as sin is just filling the world, the blood of Abel is described as calling out to God from the ground. It's calling out to God from the ground, and it's speaking, and we're to understand that this blood is calling out for justice as his life has been taken. Abel's blood still speaks. We read that actually in Hebrews chapter 11, if you were with us maybe four or five sermons ago, that Abel's blood is still speaking, and it cries out for justice, but at the center of this gathering, we find out that we see the lamb that was slain, the blood of Jesus pouring over this Passover gathering and festival for us, and it's speaking. It wants to remind us, all gathered there, that the reason we're there and the reason we belong there is not because of our works, not because of our righteousness, not because of our consistency or our spiritual seriousness, but we're there for one reason, one reason alone, because his blood speaks a better word over us and that word is mercy so the comparison here is that the real spiritual life is a pilgrimage from religious fear dominating our picture of God to gospel freedom this city prepared the festivity happening and at the center to make sure that we know we belong there we're welcome we're desired we're loved the blood of jesus speaks mercy and grace from god giving us full assurance and confidence and he says this is where we are going in fact he speaks of it as though it's right now in the present. He says, we've already come to it. In Jesus, we see the city. We're marching up to Zion. We're walking up the hill with other believers, singing of the promises, anticipating the grace, enjoying the reality, trusting the promise that's being pointed to, and we can see the city. And we're walking there, trusting, waiting, 
Believing in the spiritual life is a pilgrimage away from this religious failure to gospel freedom. And it's glorious. So how do I know that I'm on the right spiritual journey? This helps us. Like, how do you know that you really are on the right spiritual journey in your life? Well, this time of year, I crave warm weather. Anybody with me? More of you should have said amen than that. And I crave the beach. I grew up in the mountains of northern Pennsylvania where there's still snow on the ground now. I don't think I saw a palm tree until I was in my late teens. But over the years, I've started to enjoy a pilgrimage south. Somewhere around now in my life, I feel like I'm a little late this year. And, and the thing I love is that as I drive south, the scenery begins to change. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Get down there in the middle of South Carolina somewhere, and you start seeing that first palm tree. Right? That palm tree just telling us the story of what's coming. That warm weather. You see that? The scenery starts to change. And those palm trees, they represent sunshine and joy. Right? The scenery begins to change until all of a sudden you look around and it's all changed. And you realize you're in the tropics and the sun is shining and you're alive again. Well, in the same way, on this genuine spiritual pilgrimage, as we really understand what we've come to in Jesus Christ, on this genuine spiritual pilgrimage, the scenery of your spiritual life, it begins to change as you walk toward Christ. You move from thinking of your own effort and your own progress in keeping the rules and your own commitment and showing God your sincerity and, and your strength and your maturity to understanding the good news of Jesus, that he's truly already accomplished everything on your behalf and tends to deliver it to you, and God wants to bring you into his joy. You become more captivated along the way by God's mercy over your sin than your sense of victory over it. You become more captivated by God's mercy. You become more trusting in his grace in the moment as you travel down this road because you no longer believe that God is here in this moment, in the struggle you may be facing, the trial you may be facing, that he's here to destroy you because you've come to a different city. You're seeing that one where Jesus is in the midst of it promising you that God is working even every moment right now for your good, to bring you into the reality of that joy, to mature you for his presence and he will not let anything destroy you till you get there you find grace for the moment in the scenery of the journey no matter how difficult the things are that you're facing as you continue on that spiritual journey and you become more expectant of what he has promised as you walk towards the city that's being described and you look at it it becomes more real that becomes the reality that has your attention these other things begin to fade that is the city we've come to. That is the difference between spiritual death and spiritual life. And I want to tell you, it's the difference between all the bad religion in the world and all of our terribly low thoughts of what God is up to that have primary to do with us earning and Him testing us out to see if we're serious rather than us open-handedly saying, God, I can't deliver myself, but thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ that he has given us the victory and it is sure and it is delivered and though I don't deserve it, it's mine. That's what, that's what spiritually mature people sound like. And that gives power. You find rest for your soul in that faith, in that confidence. You find freedom from criticizing everybody else around you about their level of maturity, the scenery just starts to change. You see how people can be helped in grace rather than how frustrated you are about where they're at. The scenery starts to change. Like you could be in the same church that you were in two years ago and look around and go, man, I, I love that person. 
I want to, I wonder if there's anything I can do to help them grow. Man, and although it looks like they need a lot of things, maybe I can help them. Before you just felt bothered that people were saying, you know, you ought to build stronger communities, spend more time together. It just starts changing. When this happens, another change in our life begins to take place. The, and I want to say, I've taken longer time on this one than I'm going to take on my second point. Just to put all of you guys at ease. But I got something else we got to say here in this passage. Are we okay to hit it? Thank you. I knew you, would, I knew you would let me do that. The second thing we see here is that the Christian life is a pilgrimage from personal ambition to kingdom decision. You see, the first one shows us that the Christian life is a pilgrimage from this religious fear to gospel freedom, but then it shows us what it looks like as we walk along the way to mature, and it's a pilgrimage from personal ambition to kingdom decisions. So now that the writer of Hebrews has had us captivated, we've just been in that city, right? We've been sitting there rejoicing over it, and he says, wait, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking from the center of that city, urging you on in faith and endurance. Verse 25, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. He's going back to the comparison. He says, Moses, who spoke from earth, you know, when, when they were to go up into the promised land, the, the generation of the people of Israel that said no, God pushed aside. They didn't escape. They didn't get what God had prepared for them. They missed it. They refused to listen to the God said, that said, this land is yours. I'm going to give it to you. And he says, if they suffered that judgment for refusing the one who was speaking, how much more will we suffer if we deny the slain lamb at the center of this city who has said, just turn from your sin and trust me. And I will deliver it to you. You see, he pictures this promised land as a place we go up to by faith as we walk with God. The Christian life is a pilgrimage from personal ambition to kingdom decisions. And so we get that he rips us out of this scene to bring us into this reality that we are in. We're on the road now. We're on the pilgrimage, aren't we? We took a moment here a second ago to glimpse that reality, but... That's not everything for us right now. It's, we, we're here in reality on this. We've got decisions to make about life. Right? We've got people that are trying to tell us what matters and what's important, what we should focus on. Maybe we should turn back. Maybe it isn't worth it to keep walking with Jesus. Or maybe turn aside for a while. Be so serious about it. This is our spiritual life. You ever get halfway through a journey and wonder if you really want to finish it? That's the question. Do you want to quit? It's hard. It's difficult right now. And he's showing us that the decisions are not inconsequential. Don't refuse to listen. To bring this home, he talks about a work of God, yet future, that he describes as a shaking. He wants us to make sure that we make the right decision on the road. He is saying that the voice of the Lord shook the earth at the giving of the law. Another comparison to what had happened at the law. And so he's saying, you know, they heard the voice, it shook the earth, they trembled in fear. But as God brings the fullness of his salvation, there will yet be another shaking that has already been promised through the prophet Haggai, which is referenced right here. It's imagery for future judgment, a shaking that will determine what is really valuable and lasting. Here are the words that the Old Testament prophet Haggai speaks that are being referred to here. Haggai 2, 1 through 9, it's on the screen behind you. Just follow along for a moment with me and hear about this. The people of Israel had failed. They'd been exiled to Babylon. Now God, through his provision and through his promise, has returned them to Jerusalem, and they've built a rather pathetic 
version of the city back up and pathetic temple. And it says, in the seventh month, after all this is settled, they've, they've lost what God had given them. And now they've returned and they're building it back. They're doing the work. He says, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Johazadik, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people. So he says, speak to the governor, the spiritual leader, and the people. I want to say something to my people Judah. He asked him a question, verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Who remembers what this place looked like before it was destroyed? The glory of Solomon's temple, the promise of God over the city of Jerusalem, the benefits and blessings of his richness. How do you see it now? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? He says, looking out over this life in this world, as we look around on our pilgrimage, we see the broken things. Is it even worth continuing to work? Is it worth us living for the kingdom of God now, or should we just pack it in and wait till God brings us all the way to the end? And he says, through this, this prophecy, the same thing that he said to them, he says to us. And listen to what he says. Yet now be strong. O Zerubbabel declares the Lord, Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you. Work, that's the word. The word is that the work doesn't fail. That the things we do to glorify God, the things that we, that we decide, the obediences that seem simple and maybe even inconsequential, they matter. They seem like they can't change the rising and falling of kingdoms of this world. And maybe even it seems like Christianity is losing. Can I just be honest? There's a lot of people who think Christianity is losing. Who feel like they've got to fight a culture war. To like get God back in charge. God hasn't lost anything. He's not losing. The gates of hell are not preparing, uh, not prevailing over the kingdom of God. It might be in your life that needs to be submitted. But God isn't losing and God doesn't intend to lose. The victorious son whom death could not kill and keep is risen from the dead, seated on the throne in the middle of the city, and God isn't losing anything. The question is, are we working with the kingdom of God or working with our selfish ambitions? Because when we build our own kingdoms on our own self-ambitions, let me tell you, those ambitions, even the ones that we baptized in false spirituality, are going to die. And there's a lot that passes for spirituality that has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ at the center of this city that is the glorious freedom of real sinners forgiven. That has everything to do to try to win some gains in a culture war. God is not losing. And the work that we do today will matter. What you do in faithfulness today, even if it looks like failure and in in just is void of success, God has promised that that work he is filling up with his spirit and it's a part of his future kingdom and there's a day when he is going to shake the world. And those kingdoms that look successful are going to fall to the ground. And what's going to remain is the work of God's people. The vocations of God's people that have gone into all of their workplaces, all the things that God has called us to do, and faithfully lived in obedience to God in their communities, in households. And when everything else is shaken, what God produced through the power of His Spirit in our lives will remain. You can't lose a thing as you walk with God, but you can lose everything as you pursue your selfish ambitions. And so the spiritual pilgrimage is a spiritual pilgrimage from personal ambition to kingdom decisions. He says, my spirit remains in your midst. <laughs> this is the same word, right? 
fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of the nations shall come in and I will fill this house with the glory, says the Lord of hosts. And that house isn't just the temple, it's what the temple signifies. It's the kingdom of David given to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom Revelation says we will know no end. So it's not just a shaking, it's a shakedown. From all the places where it looks like people robbed God, he will shake it down. And what remains will be brought in to the benefit of his kingdom. That's God. And that's what we work with. (laughs) That's how confident we can be as we serve and arrange our lives around his kingdom. Here's the spiritual move on this pilgrimage. We move from our personal ambitions that will be shaken away to a devoted life of serving God through whatever calling he's given us. We work not because we have a glorious kingdom to build, but because all other kingdoms will be shaken down and their glory used to establish the kingdom of God. We look at every part of our life and we offer it to God in worship, saying he's the only one that is worthy. And because the kingdom of God will remain when everything else gets shaken, we can rest secure. An illustration, and I'll close. Back in 2014, I was in Nepal. We were driving through Kathmandu with Robert, one of our fellow pillar members who was living there at the time. I was looking around at the buildings, and I said to him, can you just see, you know, these buildings that have been poorly constructed? I said, could you imagine what an earthquake would do to this place? Most of the buildings look like a little shake, and they would fall to the ground. Well, that shaking came several months later in the spring of 2015. I remember waking up in the morning and hearing that there had been a 7.8 magnitude earthquake in Kathmandu, and I knew it would be devastating, and it was. It was one of the great humanitarian disasters of our time. I just want to say, most of our personal ambitions... Look like that city in light of the shaking down of God's judgment that remains between now and eternity. Most of what we pursue as our personal ambition will get shaken out. And the only thing that's going to remain is what has been there to celebrate the worth of God, to celebrate and establish and rejoice in and obey and live for the kingdom of God that has no end. And in that day, we want our lives and our work to be remain, to remain standing. Take note and make your life about this unshakable kingdom. He's, sa- he's not saying this out of fear. Actually, he's not saying, oh, be fearful, it's going to all shake. He's actually saying, rejoice. We have received a kingdom that can't be shaken. Jesus has given us something that can't be taken. It can't be shaken out. It's being delivered to us. And he closes and he says in verse 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Let's bow our heads as we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper today. And before we, before we do that, With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to ask you two questions. First one is this. By faith, have you taken the journey from religious fear to gospel freedom? That picture of what it really means to know God, what Jesus has purchased to bring you into his joy, have you really trusted that that's who God is? who he's revealed to us through his son. Has there been a time in your life where you've been willing to repent of your sin and your own pursuit and say, God, I trust what Jesus has done. My security's in that, my hope is in that. Maybe you're here today and you would say, you know, I've been trying to work my way to God, prove my seriousness to God, but today I realize that what I really need to do is turn from my own dead works 
trust in what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And I want to trust it by faith. With everybody's heads bowed and eyes closed, maybe you're here today and you say, today I want to take this, the first step on a real journey of faith towards Christ. I want to come to Him. If that's you, would you just slip up your hand where you're at? I'm not going to ask you to come down or walk an aisle or anything like that, but I'd like to be able to pray for you this morning. Maybe follow up with you. You'd like to say, today, you know, I never understood this good news of what God has done for me. Today I want to put my faith in Jesus Christ. Don't linger long, but maybe you're here. You just acknowledge that to me so I could pray for you. As we think about that second question, journey from personal ambition to kingdom decisions in your life, maybe today you would say, Pastor, I know that a lot of my life uh, as a Christian, even right now, is caught up in my own personal ambitions, but today I want to take a turn towards caring more about making kingdom decisions with my life, about living for what it is that you've called me to be. Today, maybe you're there and you say, God's just working on you about that and you want to acknowledge that to me so I can pray for you. Just slip up your hand where you're at. I need to make a journey, thank you, from personal ambitions to kingdom decisions. Father, we love you. You're so kind to us, and we thank you for this moment to, to just look on you and hear these words and be reminded of what's true. God, I pray for those who have acknowledged their need for spiritual strength, God, to focus on this journey. Lord, I pray that you would give clarity of what a kingdom vision looks like in their life going forward. Well, for them as an individual, and I pray for us as a church and a people, Lord, would you allow us to celebrate your goodness, to trust what you're doing, and to work with you for the kingdom of God to be brought to life through us, through our witness, that we would see it grow and be strengthened as we entrust ourselves to you, as we walk by faith. Lord, we want to work in your kingdom. Not because it will earn us a place, but because you've already welcomed us as your people. Lord, we're grateful for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. In a moment, we're going to